In the world of marketing, there is always one paramount question, always one big question. Who is your audience? In other words, whom are you trying to please? For example, let's suppose you make a product, and your product is designed for uh, six-year-old girls who don't yet have their own phones, and you're doing a mobile ad. At whom do you target your mobile phone ad? Do you, do you target her big brother, whom she clearly adores? Do you target fireman, whom everyone adores? Or do you target the girl's mom? This really isn't difficult, no offense to any madman out there. You figure out whom you're trying to please and you target your activity to them. Firemen are cool, older brothers are helpful, but neither of those is the person you really want to please, right? You want to make mom happy. All the moms said, amen. Yeah, you want to make mom happy with your product because she controls all the purchases for six-year-olds, right? Know your audience and you can sell your product. Of course, knowing your audience isn't limited to marketing. This applies to all of life. Like most people of his generation, my dad uh, grew up smoking cigarettes as a child. Uh, he liked it, he didn't want to quit. But then, our infant daughter endured very serious lung damage from an illness. That left Paul with a decision. What was he gonna sacrifice? Would he give up time with his granddaughter, or would he sacrifice smoking? Which one do you think he gave up? Yeah, he gave up the smoking. Why? Because he cared about the audience of his little girl far more than he cared about his own desires. He rearranged his life to fit with the audience for whom he cared the most. And this applies to everything. You figure out who your audience is, and then you rearrange your life to fit that audience. It's really simple, but even though it seems simple, people struggle with this. And I don't mean other people, I mean, I mean me, you, us. We easily forget our target audience and we start wasting our energy trying to please and sacrifice and fit in with the wrong ones. Jesus exposes our problem and the solution in his Sermon on the Mount. Um, take a look inside your worship guide. Uh, you got a bulletin when you came in, open it up, look on the left-hand side of that and you'll see this uh, wonderful summary from D.A. Carson's book on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, we humans are a strange lot. We hear high moral injunctions and glimpse just a little the genuine beauty of perfect holiness and then prostitute that vision by dreaming about the way others would hold us in high esteem if we were like that. <laughs> the, de the demand for genuine perfection in Christ loses itself in the lesser goal of external piety. The goal of pleasing the Father is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing men. Close quote. So true. Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, first book in your New Testament. Go to chapter 6. Let's read verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. <clears throat> this is the general statement that introduces what we're going to study today. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to serve somebody. Carson is correct. We are all serving somebody. The question is, who is your audience? I either sacrifice for and serve human beings, myself or other human beings, or I sacrifice for and I serve God. If one lives for the triune God, Jesus says the Father grants rewards from heaven. If one works for people, not only is that effort not rewarded, it's counterproductive. I don't know if you know this, but other scripture makes it clear that, that working for humans ultimately facilitates the great enemy of humanity, Satan. 
This led Bob Dylan to write a, a poem that became a hit song that helped him win the Nobel Prize a few years ago. He wrote the song, You're Gonna Have to Serve Somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble, you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody, close quote. That's Matthew 6.1. Uh, Christian writer Martha Evangelisti describes Matthew 6.1. I really like this. She says, it is living before God's face. Not, not everything that she writes, I think, is accurate, but this is really good. She goes through the benefits of living before God's face. You have a good, clean conscience. That doesn't mean you're without sin. First John tells us anybody says they're without sin, they're lying. It means you have a good conscience. It catches sin. It's quick to catch it. Um, you have a meaningful relationship with God when you live before God instead of trying to please people. Life is new. It's interesting. You're always seeking and finding what is right in every situation. You have freedom to think and to do and to be good regardless of other people or your own innate tendencies. And, and you have an eternal reward, Matthew 6, 1 says, for every faithful decision, big and small. The opposite is to live trying to serve people. Serving people uh, sometimes looks like this meme. This was sent to me by one of our college students recently. It says, how the Pharisaic laws originated. I feel like you were mad at me yesterday, and I don't know why, so I made a list of everything I did, and I'm going to try not to do any of them again. That, that's creepy and accurate. That's serving people. Of course, sometimes serving humans, often serving humans, is, is expressed by serving myself. I am the main focus of all my service. So which is it for each of us? Are we, are we living before God's face, serving Him, or do we have the inevitable legalism and exhaustion and inauthenticity that comes from people pleasing? Whom do I serve? Let's take a simple assessment. I want to ask you seven questions. Each of these are questions that have been asked of me. Okay, and I want you to put yourself in the situation. Question number one. Others are strongly advising, I take revenge for a wrong done to me. I see scripture telling me to be wise and to fight for right, but to leave vengeance in God's hands. What do I do? What do you do in that situation? Number two. For some time, I received lots of encouragement for my hard work. Then we got a new boss, and the praise vanished. Does my work ethic slip? Ask yourself this. Put yourself in that situation. Does my work ethic slip even, even a tiny bit? Who, who are you serving? Number three. Some friends are a negative influence in my life, but I feel a need for friends, and I worry about the reputation. Yet if I move away from that bad persuasion, they are total gossips. They will trash me to other people. Do I dare walk away? Whom do I serve? Number four, I must honestly confess to a fear at work that if people find out I'm not, I'm not merely a churchgoer, but I'm a real follower of Jesus, it's possible that news could severely damage my career. Do I hide my Christianity even a, even a little? Question number five, true or false? This one really hurts me. True or false, praise from an important human in my life is greater than praise from God. Number six, Jesus suddenly is visibly present uh, on the couch while I'm watching TV on any average night. Or, or he's reading the book with me or watching me play that game or fiddle with the app or surf the web, whatever the activity. Am I proud to share that normal experience with him? 
Question seven. True or false? At church, I sometimes worry more about other people than I do my own engagement with the Lord. It's very likely that you, like me, answered one or more of those questions in a way that makes it clear that you don't always serve the Lord as your primary focus, right? I doubt this requires belaboring. Just do this. Raise your hand if you sometimes find yourself performing for any audience other than God. Raise your hand if you find yourself performing for other. Okay, yeah, me too. To all of us, God says this uh, through Paul's example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Our purpose is to please whom, everybody? God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. We settle for the applause of people foregoing the rewards of God. That is as absurd as Esau selling his birthright for a pot of stew. That, that's what we do. And frankly, it's idolatry. It is idolatry. When I primarily serve people, when I perform for others or myself, I'm declaring that their worth outstrips God's. I am literally worth shipping. That's what worship is. In English, it's two words put together, worth and ship. I am shipping worth to people that belongs to Almighty God alone. Now, think about this. Where is this idolatrous tendency to perform for humans the ugliest? In all of our lives when we do this, where is it the ugliest? I think it's very likely in our worship. Horribly, this has plagued churches throughout the centuries. The, the problem isn't the choice of songs. The problem isn't the volume or the type of music. Those things are just about taste and tradition. The problem is we, in our worship, fall into the trap of performing for people. And when we complain about worship, do you ever think about this? We often are just exacerbating the problem. Think about it. When, when I go up to the people in charge of worship and I complain about whatever I'm complaining about, you know what I'm doing? I'm saying, worship me. I should be happy. Make this what I want, right? Look, all worshipers are performing. Every single person who's worshiping is performing, whether on the stage or in the audience. But sadly, we often are not performing for the correct audience. Jesus exposes all this by grabbing three big activities. These are three big worship activities of the first century Jewish village, okay? Giving, praying, fasting. And, and with each of these, he readjusts our focus so that we can begin to live and worship for the right audience. And if we will address this problem in our worship, it will flow over into all of our lives. Let's look at Jesus' word on giving. That's the headline atop the right side of our notes. It is the instruction in verses two through four. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The key word is hypocrites. It comes into English as what word? What, what, is it? what word is it in English? Hypocrite, yeah, Hippocrates becomes hypocrite. Now, this is cool. Hippocrates, actually, the word means an actor on the Greek stage. Hippocrates was a word for an actor. That's what it was. Only by association did it come to be used for somebody who was performing for a human crowd, not even on a Greek stage. It's really telling that our English forebears, I think it's pretty smart of them, they begin to use hypocrite as someone who doesn't fit. Whose, whose words and deeds don't match up with each other. That's what trying to please people does to you. And this is a fairly racy term for Jesus to employ. Look, Galilee was strongly Hellenized. There were theaters all over Galilee where Jesus gave this speech. And, and lots of people flocked to those theaters, but not godly people. Godly people never 
never went to a Greek theater. It was considered a place of debauchery. I know this is really hard for you to imagine in our day and age, but in that time period, actors were considered to be uh, degenerate and, uh, and dangerous. So when Jesus calls them hypocrites, I, okay, here's the best example I can give. It would be as if I stood up here and called everybody prostitutes. Okay, that, that's what he's doing using the word hypocrites. Now, almsgiving was a very important part of Jewish life. Uh, supporting the needy was an honored practice. It is exalted in Moses' law. It's exalted in the tradition. It's a way to worship Yahweh who gives us all things. This was an assumed part of life. Notice Jesus says, when you give. The Scottish professor uh, William Barclay captured the first century thinking. He said, giving was at once a privilege and an obligation. For in reality, all giving is nothing less than giving to God. To give to some needy person was not something which a man might choose to do. It was something he must do. For if you refuse, the refusal was to God, right? Now, we don't operate under the law, but that principle is true for Christians as well. When we give to, um, to our church benevolence fund, uh, to, to clothe the child, to Frisco Family Services, to Grace Bridge, Life Talk, and, uh, and the showers of blessings that we do, to Laundry Love, to, um, to the Prairie Estates that we support, to all the different local missions that this church supports, we have an opportunity. Our opportunity is to do more than merely help people. We're not just helping people. You and I are sacrificing. We are living before the face of God. The point for us now is very similar to the situation for these disciples who are sitting on this mountain hearing Jesus' sermon. We should give to people as a way to worship the Lord. Now, they likely wouldn't have used a salty term like Hippocrates. I can't imagine a Pharisee saying Hippocrates. But the Pharisaical rabbis actually taught very similarly to, to on this as Jesus does. I want to show you a couple of their quotes. These are from the first century and earlier. Um, he who gives alms in secret is greater than Moses. Uh, and from the Hagiga, uh, the best giving is when the recipient does not know from whom he gets it and the giver does not know to whom he gives it. The rabbis were fairly wise on this. They were even wise enough to notice that Moses' law never calls for making people dependent. Um, in the Middle Ages, there was a great... A scholar, a Jewish polymath named Maimonides, and Maimonides summarized all of the rabbinical teaching on almsgiving this way. He said, the best almsgiving avoids anything that makes people dependent and thus ultimately poorer. So this is kind of strange, but the scribes and Pharisees are actually in agreement with Jesus on this one issue. They appear, for once, to understand scripture, and they have not warped it into something weird and legalistic. Hooray! Not so fast. The problem was the Pharisees and their huge following did not practice these things that they preached. They were hypocrites in every sense. In reality, uh, let, let me read you a little brief story that gives you what they really practiced in real life. This is from a liberal scholar, a liberal Swiss theologian named J.J. Wettstein. He says this story. In the East, water is so scarce it sometimes had to be bought. When a man wanted to do a good act and bring blessing on his family, he went to a water carrier with a good voice and instructed him, give the thirsty a drink. The water carrier filled all his skins and carried them to the marketplace. Oh, thirsty ones, he cried, come to drink the offering. And the giver stood by him and said, bless me who gave you this drink. Right? By the way, <laughs> I absolutely love that that story is told by a guy whose name is Wettstein. Wettstein, in his original German, his language would be betting on a drinking cup. That's beautiful. That's just awesome. But the story he tells is not beautiful. 
Sadly, this was the norm in the ancient world. From Israel to Babylon to Rome, bless me for I have given to you. The best that can be said, and this is the best that can be said for that kind of trumpeted giving, is that it does at least advance the political standing of the giver. But Jesus points out that is no way to worship God. Trumpeted giving is focused on a human audience. Jesus says giving properly is to do so before the Lord. That means one mustn't give to advance one's self. There's nothing wrong, listen, there's nothing wrong with keeping records, with getting a tax deduction. That is fine, unless that is your motive for giving. That's the meaning of this left-hand, right-hand comment. It's not a call to ignorant stewardship. This is a call to flee self-righteousness and selfish giving. So we read this, and understanding Jesus' point, we are sickened by these self-righteous Pharisees putting on their filthy robes of self-worship, thinking they look so dapper and holy. Thank goodness we're not like that. The average American Christian, and I'm not talking about just somebody who goes to church, somebody who claims to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, okay? The average gives 2% of his or her income to the local church. 2%. And about three-tenths of 1% directly to the poor. Okay, but get this. When those same people are given a survey that has five questions on it about how they consider themselves as givers, 78% of them answer in the top two categories, generous or very generous. Wait a minute. The average gift is 2% and yet 78% call themselves generous or very generous? That's not generous. That's bad tipping. That's awful. Giving is such a wonderful and joyful activity. There's spiritual, there is eternal reward before God's face when we give. But we ruin it with our self-focus, and thus we're hypocrites. Just, we are just as likely as the Pharisees to become self-righteous about what we give because we think it's so much. Read with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 7. You get the underlined text. Now, as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence... And in your love for us, excel also in this grace and in the context he's talking about giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Amen. Giving that makes other people rich, that is, that's a Christ-like plan. Jesus' ethic is to give generously, like Jesus, to do so without hypocrisy, without showmanship or ego. We sacrifice before the Lord. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right, next, Jesus teaches us about praying. Let's learn from Jesus' word on praying. Uh, verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and other street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room. Shut your door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. To introduce this idea of prayer, um, some brethren of ours uh, put together a little uh, primer on modern prayer styles. This is the kind of thing that our drama team does so well, and some friends did this one for us. Let me show you. Uh, I can't show all of it. They did a long piece. I want to show you about a minute of modern praying. 
Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day, Lord Jesus, and all your wonderful, Lord Jesus, things that you, Lord Jesus, do for us, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord Jesus. <laughs> okay, uh, I just want to thank you for Annie and Sarah and Molly. I know that with your strength, we can change the world! We can change the world! Woo! Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and we give you the praise. Yes, Jesus. We cannot wait to see what you're going to yes. do today. And we are excited. <laughs> Aunt Margaret's really nasty hangnail. And I worship you forever and ever. <laughs> God, I, uh, I just, uh, I've done that. Um, toilet paper, deodorant. <laughs> Speaking of, I need to get some more. Actually, I do thank God for deodorant. All right, enough laughing at ourselves. Let's get to Jesus' serious point. This is very inflammatory language. Look, look again, Hippocrates he uses. Jesus is comparing the synagogues to theaters. The, that is a pointed picture that I... I assure you, upset the Pharisees. They ran most of the synagogues. Jesus exposes two serious prayer problems. Let's take them in reverse order. The second one is babbling. Babbling was very common in paganism, but eventually it crept into Judaism. It's crept into Christianity as well. The false premise is that it's somehow more holy to be long-winded, and the more I talk, the more I can wear God down. All right? I'm not trying to be as harsh as Jesus but I think you need to understand that repetitious prayers can easily be idolatry, just as the Lord describes. For example, in, in certain church traditions, this is a real problem. Um, in Greek Orthodoxy, just to pick one, there are a series of prayers the new convert to that Orthodoxy is taught, and this, the person is supposed to pray these prayers over and over and over and over and over until they enter, and I quote, a heightened state of awareness. That's, that's babbling, folks. That's idolatry. In fact, that is, that is in a word, paganism. Jesus um, gives the perfect answer to all babbling. All babbling. He says, think about God's sovereignty. It is no more spiritual to assume that God is less than omniscient. Yes, the Father desires that we converse with him all the time, but we don't have to belabor every aspect of every detail as if he were some tired parent that would finally give in if we just babble long enough. Right? The other impropriety Jesus flags, the one he attacks first, is praying for attention. I imagine very few have ever done this. Uh, I don't imagine many of you have done this. I have. Once I was uh, at a, another city and I was praying. They asked me to come pray for a big deal going on in their city. And it was a special meeting of their city council and I prayed with them all. And it went really well. I enjoyed it. And afterwards I was kind of down. And I couldn't I couldn't really figure out what was wrong. Why was I feeling down? And so I, I sat in my car for a minute before I drove home, and I was spending some time thinking and praying, and then it became very clear. The reason I was feeling blue was that I had expected more applause. I really, I expected attention from humans because of my brilliant erudition and depth of thought. That is sick. 
supposedly talking before the face of God Almighty, engaging with the audience that really matters in prayer, I'm looking for the applause of humans. That is sick. A few years later, I was asked to pray at another city, and, uh, and I prayed at their city council meeting as well. And, uh, and this time, I really did. I had learned. I'd worked on this with the Lord, and I really just focused on God. I engaged with him. In fact, I engaged with him so fully that I even, I even prayed in Jesus' name, which is something I don't often do when I'm praying at city councils and things because that can be offensive to people, and we're trying to be inclusive even as we represent the Lord. But it was fine until I walked outside. When I finally went outside, there were two Hindu men who had been waiting for me. They'd been waiting 15 minutes for me to emerge from the city council. And I walked out and I said, hi. And I said, we've been waiting for you. And I said, that's exciting. <laughs> and then they said, we wanted to wait to ask you, how do you get such a personal connection with a God? That prayer was beautiful. We want to know a God that way. How do you do that? And I was able there on the sidewalk to talk to them about Jesus, the real God, fully God, fully man, who made a way for us and came to us so we don't have to try to earn our way to him. I got to share the good news of Christ. The point is, motives are the big issue in your prayer. It's similar to what we saw with giving, right? The, the specifically bad motives Jesus calls out in prayer have to do with pleasing people, trying to force God's hand. When we do that, we're not living for the right audience, and his work isn't accomplished. The antidote is Jesus' prayer list. Look at verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you will forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. The title in our notes may be the most important thing to remember about what we call the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer guide. This is a prayer guide. It is not a magic formula. Paganism believed that one had to, had to recite prayers exactly, correctly, or you would risk angering the gods, right? Please! Do not warp the Lord's Prayer into that. It is the depth of sick spiritual irony that this prayer guide that Jesus intended to be an intimate conversation with God can be turned into a rote formula. And I do mean intimate conversation. Look at the very first phrase, our Father. It doesn't get any closer than that. Every human longs for a strong relationship with a, with a loving developing, protecting father. Even if you have a great earthly father, as many of us do, he is flawed. He is. There have been moments of disappointment and abandonment in the best families. But wonder of wonders through Jesus, his followers are brought into a relationship with the perfect heavenly God as our father that is absolutely unheard of in world religion. Also shocking. Do you notice this? Jesus doesn't set any time for prayer. That's never been imagined. Every pagan religion had set prayer times, a practice that even crept somewhat into Judaism. Um, Dr. Bailey does a great job describing the, the, the revolution that Jesus is introducing here with his prayer guide. Look what Bailey says. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus suggest special hours for daily prayer. By its absence, this is the first change to appear in the pattern of prayer commended by Jesus. He goes on. 
The modern consensus among scholars is that the Lord's Prayer begins with the Aramaic word Abba, Daddy. And therefore, we can assume that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Aramaic of daily communication rather than the classical Hebrew of the written text. Both Judaism and Islam have a sacred language. Christianity does not. This is a fact of enormous consequence. There is no sacred culture. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray Abba, he affirmed a vision of the family of faith that went beyond the community of those who claimed a racial tie to Abraham. If God is our Father, all people are able to address him equally. Isn't that awesome? Can I get a hallelujah? I would love to speak more on this, but we need to press on and not get lost in the weeds. If you want more depth on this, and I, I hope we all do, please visit uh, this series, 2012 series that was taught here at Frisco Bible. It's called Lord Teach Us to Pray. Four messages there that are on the entirety of the Lord's Prayer. The whole four messages just cover the words, the scripture we just read. For the rest of Jesus' prayer list, let me encourage you to look in your notes. I really like Layman Strauss's view of it. He organized it into this chart. He said, look at the Lord's prayer list, and it works like this. The priority, the priority is God, audience of one. That's the whole point of the context. Thy name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The poverty is ours. That's humanity's. Us give daily bread. Us forgive. Us lead. Us deliver. Then there are three petitions. When we're praying, we should, we should talk to God about his nature, our relation to God, our Father, which art in heaven. Reverence for God, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, and our resignation before God, thy kingdom, thy will be done. And then we should be praying about our human needs. So there are three requests about human needs. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm in need, Lord. Forgive our debts. Lead us, deliver us from evil. All that's covered in depth in those podcasts from back in 2012. However, there are two things we need to comment on now in this prayer list, particularly dealing with verse 13. Look at Matthew 6, 13. Verse 13 sometimes causes consternation because in modern languages, it sounds like God might, if we don't ask him, he might purposely lead his people into an evil place. Well, that's pretty wicked. That is not at all the meaning as it would have been understood by Jesus' disciples on that mountain. F.F. F. Bruce explains really well. Look what he says. Uh, Dr. Bruce says, in the context of Jesus' ministry, the meaning was grant that we may not fail the test. Through the ultimate trial, we do not pass. The Son of Man passed through it as our representative. But the time of trial, which will show whether we are truly his follower, may or may not come upon any Christian at any time. Remember, you can be a believer and not be, a, not be following. And there are trials that expose that. He goes on. Those who know their faith is no more reliable than that of Peter and James and John, who failed their tests in Gethsemane. Later, they passed tests as followers, but they failed in Gethsemane. Those who know their faith is no more reliable than that of Peter, James, and John may well pray to be saved from a trial or to receive the grace necessary to endure it, close quote. Lead us not into temptation really means grant that we may not fail the test. Second issue in verse 13 is that text in brackets, you see that? That, that appears to have been added a whole lot later. That clause does not appear in our earliest manuscripts of Matthew. It may reflect a later hymn somebody added to a late copy of Matthew. So let's review. Giving, so worship activity. So we give sacrificially like Jesus. We do so without hypocrisy, without showmanship, without ego. We give before the Lord. Prayer is a worship activity, yet we tend to babble and preen before people. To stop that, we adopt Jesus' prayer style. That's the antidote. There's a third worship activity that was embedded in the very warp and woof of the first century Hebrew life, and that's fasting. Look at our very last part of our text, Jesus' word on fasting. Verse 16, whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites. 
For they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head. That sounds gross, doesn't it? Oil in the Bible, everything, medicine, uh, cosmetics, everything was based in olive oil. That was the, the basis of it all. So that means clean up, look pretty, put lipstick on the pig, however you want to translate it. You look nice, smell good. Um, <clears throat> put oil on your head and wash your face so you don't show your fasting to people, but to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Once again, worship activity performed for an audience of one. Jesus takes all the scripture on fasting, and there's a lot. All the tradition that had built up over hundreds of years, and he cuts to the heart of the matter. Fasting is a, is a sacrificial act of worship performed for God alone. The, the, the plan is to eschew human rewards and seek eternal ones instead. Now, the, the goal of fasting, the purpose is to be hungry. I know that's shocking, isn't it? Astonishing. But that's it. the scriptural idea of fasting is to be hungry as a reminder that I am a weak human. Fasting is not to get some answer. It's not to get some power from God, at least not directly. Fasting is designed to put myself before God in all my ridiculous human weakness. Then I'm in a position to appreciate God's wonderful provision. Fasting is a, it's really a tangible way to live out what Jesus said earlier in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me an excellent observation. David wrote and he said, Wayne, the point applies to our cravings for food or drink beyond our needs. When I desire five or six or seven chocolate chip cookies instead of one or two, it's a real-time indicator of my need for God. It's like a warning light on the dashboard of my soul. Isn't that well said? And notice the whenever regarding fasting. This is an assumed part of worship and not just for Hebrew culture. You and I are not under legalism. No one is required to fast. But I tell you, fasting is a great tool for responding to those warning lights that are going off on the dashboard of our soul. Because every one of us, every day, is serving somebody. We are pleasing someone. We are sacrificing for somebody. Remember Bob Dylan's insight? He wrapped up his poem this way. You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. Hopefully not together. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus knows that you and I are always serving someone. That's why he lays out this marvelous ethic for his followers. He knows we serve somebody. And fasting properly is a great way, it is a great tool to make sure that I am serving the Lord. Therefore, it is a very wise thing to occasionally fast. I'd like to make a recommendation to you. This week, before Valentine's Day, today as we gather, we're a few days away from Valentine's. Yes, guys, all over the auditorium, suddenly set up more straightly. Um, we know, girls, you bought your cards three months ago. Good for you. Um, <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Okay, let me propose you choose one of these three things. Okay, one of these three. Option one, eat no Valentine's candy this week. Yeah? Now, obviously, this only works if you like Valentine's candy. Okay? The point is to be hungry, so you're reminded that you need the Lord. You focus on Him. Well, I'm going to choose that one because I hate Valentine's candy. Option two, go without food for one day. Always, if you choose to go without food, drink plenty of water. More than you normally do, drink plenty of water. Third option, skip one meal for two days straight. 
So for example, you don't have supper tonight and you don't have supper Monday. Okay, you skip that two days straight. That, that is a common, actually that was a Jewish type of fast and, and it can be really useful. Again, only if it's a meal you normally eat. All you're gonna do is become more self-righteous if you choose, oh, I don't ever eat breakfast, so I'll take that one. <laughs> That's not the point, right? All right, pick one of those. I think you'll appreciate it. Let's wrap up. Look at each aspect of this worship. Look at the different activities Jesus covers. He talks about giving. What do we sacrifice in giving? What do we sacrifice? Money. Don't say time. I mean, that's great. He's talking about money. When I give money, I sacrifice. When I'm hypocrites, when I'm acting, well, then I'm giving that money for myself or for other people. The purpose is to, is to have a proper audience where I'm giving before the face of God. Jesus talks about praying. You ever think about what you sacrifice when you're praying? I'll tell you what you sacrifice. You sacrifice your self-centeredness, your self-righteousness, your own capacity, which is a lie. By the way, if you've ever had a time, you, you who are believers in Christ, you've ever had a time when you couldn't really figure out why, but you just didn't really want to pray much. You weren't praying hardly at all. Like you went days and days, and you're like, man, I haven't talked to God at all. It's probably because things are going really well in your life right now. From a human point of view, you're doing great. You don't need God. You see, the word prayer means to ask. That's all the word means. So, so you don't ask without ceasing, the way the scripture says, because you don't recognize that you're in need every second of every moment of every day. And because you think you got it, you're large and in charge, you don't pray. I don't pray, that's what we do. And, and that self-righteousness is deadly to our soul. It, it is truly a warning light on the dashboard of our lives. So praying will help fight that. We sacrifice that. It doesn't help it. In fact, it makes it worse if we pray for self or for others. We pray for people. But if we will pray for the proper audience, if we'll engage with the God of the universe who is our Father, it changes us. Third activity of worship. Jesus says fasting. We sacrifice food. When we do that for self or others, well, I'm going to do it because I need to lose weight. It's fine. I'm not sure there's a spiritual reward in that proper audience is to do it for God, right? You ever, you ever fasted? I bet many of us have done this. You're fasting. If you've been a Christian for a while, somebody says, how you doing? You don't look so good today. Well, I, it's this fast. It's really serious. I tell you, it's wearing me out. Pray for me, would you? You've got your reward right there. That was for people. Let's fast for the Lord. Let's pray together. Let's talk about these things with God. Lord, I pray, I pray for us. I pray for our fasting and our praying and our giving that it is before the Lord. May all our worship, every aspect of our lives, be centered on you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.